A few weeks ago, we started a series considering some letters that we find at the beginning of Revelation, the last book of our Bible. And we find there are seven of these letters addressed to seven churches in what was then known as Asia Minor, uh, is now Turkey. Uh, And each church, we'll say over the weeks, is different in its own way. Each had their own strengths, each had their own weaknesses, each had their own challenges, much like churches today. But they all had some things in common. They were all tiny minority groups in great big cities. And they all, in their own way, were churches under pressure, facing different pressures, different degrees of hostility from different sources, and they respond in different ways. And John and Jesus are encouraging each of them to be faithful, to keep going, even though it's hard, that they haven't been forgotten, that God knows all about them and that Jesus was with them and he would be sufficient for them. And in the face of great difficulty, he he and Jesus and John were trying to keep alive hope. Hope. Whilst I was on a holiday, a couple of weeks, you know, seems seems an age ago now, but I read a book by a guy called Mark Manson. I'm not going to give you the title because it has a naughty word in the title, but uh, it was a book about hope. And Manson's not a Christian, but he has some interesting things to say about hope. He says, as humans, we need hope like fish need water. He says, without it, we spiritually die. Hopelessness is the root of all anxiety, all mental illness and depression. It is the source of all misery and the cause of all addiction. Hope is the only thing anyone willingly dies for. And without it, we believe we are nothing. And Manson argues that there are three ingredients or requirement for a real sense of hope. One is a sense of control, that we're the one in the driving seat, or in some sense that we can do something about our situation. It's not just a vague sense that things could be better. It's that there is the capacity for things to be made better. That it could actually happen. So it's not just wishful thinking, which is what's often people think hope means in modern language. It's not just sort of thinking, you know, someone might give me a million pounds today. It's if there, there, there is a, re, a, a true hope requires a reason to believe that it might actually happen. And the second is the belief in the value of something. That there is a target to aim for. That, you know, whatever our present experience, there is something to strive for that could be better. And it will be worth it if we do it. And the third one, which surprised me, but is really, he says, it's a sense of community. That we need to be part of a group that values the same things that we do, that will affirm us and will work together to achieve them says, without the community, 
basically our values will just wither. He says, and if, he says if, if any of these three things are lost, hope will wither and die. Now from there I go off in an entirely different direction to Manson. But it set me thinking about the hope that John offers to the churches in Revelation. And to Smyrna in, in particular. Yeah, there's, when you consider the three things, they certainly had two of them. They, they had a community. In fact, they were a community. There might not have been that many of them, but they had a community. And that they did have something that they believed in, and that it was they thought something that they thought was worth striving for. They had a promised future, and they were being encouraged to believe that if this, if they were faithful, it would be worth it. But what about that sense of control or power? I mean, they were the tiny groups in the largest, most powerful empire the world had yet seen. At its peak. The Roman Empire stretched from here all the way to India. And they were in an area that was extremely loyal to the Roman Empire. And not without good reason. Because there's a reason that Revelation is written to the churches on the screen and in this area of the world and not somewhere else. It's not just where John was, whatever. But the empire covered a huge part of the globe. But this chunk of land here was of vital importance. This was the bridge between the east of the empire and the west. They were a key part of a major trade route. Everything went through this place. And it made them prosperous. It made them wealthy. And other parts of the empire had all sorts of reason to resent or to resist Roman rule. And they did. But these cities in Asia Minor had reason to be happy and thankful for it. Loyalty brought them very rich rewards, thank you very much. Never mind anyone else, it's good for us. And so any questioning of that loyalty wouldn't have made you popular. Even at the best of times. And this was not the best of times. At different times, we, we, we know what it's like to have, some of us will have good prime ministers or presidents and we'll have bad ones. We might disagree on which who fits into what category, but we are aware of the kind of, that there are, you know, we can have good ones and bad ones. Well, the same was true of Roman emperors. And when Revelation was written, the emperor was most likely a guy called Domitian. And it would be fair to say that in all sorts of ways, Domitian was not one of the good ones. For about 150 years, stretching back as far as the death of Julius Caesar, emperors had come to kind of assume some sort of godlike status. When Caesar died, there was a comet in the sky, and uh, and people saw it. twelve witnesses saw it, and and they and they were told, well, yeah, it's obvious that was Caesar, or that was Julius Caesar ascending to the right hand of God. And from Augustus onwards, yeah, 
that sort of acquired this kind of slightly godlike status. It started by swearing loyalty to an empire. And then it became sort of conflated with the guy who was at the top. And any criticism of the emperor was being was seen as being disloyal to the state. You were an enemy of the people. A long way from anything we would see today. But emperors acquired some sort of godlike status, but most of them didn't take it seriously. It was most of most of them it was actually a bit of a joke. And certainly none of the none in the previous forty or fifty years had. Domitian was different. Domitian was a real piece of work. Domitian insisted that his own wife, his wife, referred to him as my Lord and my God. Married man, try that. Come back next week. Tell me how it worked for you. Domitian was really into the whole emperor worship thing. And his state pronouncements would begin with the words, Your Lord and God Domitian commands you. He had hymns composed to him. Choirs would follow Domitian around singing hymns which had words like Domitian, you are worthy to receive, you are Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour, worship and power. Sound familiar? He, He was often depicted as holding a scroll which only he could open. Because that was his, showed his power. He had the power of life and death. He once invited all his top people to a meal. And where you would normally put their name plate or name place, he put a tombstone with their name on it to tell them. This is what happens if you let me down or you're disloyal. Now, I mean, I saw a story in our press about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson telling the cabinet to shape up or be sacked. But they're not not working for the mission, are they? So he's an all right nice guy, this guy, right? And this brought quite a change to the mood in which the empire was viewed in lots of places, but including the church. Because if you read most of the New Testament, it's actually quite positive about the Roman Empire. If you read the book of Acts, local rulers are often seen as the kind of fair-minded or friendly people. Christians face hostility, but often it's the Roman ruler who steps in to protect them or declare that they were innocent. In the New Testament, rulers are often considered appointees of God who should be obeyed. And even in the Gospels, if you read them carefully, the blame for the death of Jesus is very heavily weighted towards the Jewish authorities rather than the Roman ones. Pilate is far from blameless, but he's just seen as a bit weak and a bit reluctant to have Jesus killed. Whereas there's other people going, crucify him, crucify him. But in Revelation, the tone changes. The empire is seen as hostile to God and his rule. It's called Babylon. 
It's a beast. It's a harlot. It refers to, and this reflects the backdrop in which these people lived. And one other piece of information, just to, get, to give you just a sense of what's going on in this section of Revelation. In Asia Minor, they, they had like a sports competition which was held in honour of Domitian. And, uh, he, yeah, and, and basically it would open with Domitian sat on a throne. It was a bit like an Olympic Games. You know, he was in the royal box. And the winners would be given a wreath crown which was uh, be presented to them by the emperor himself. And the whole thing would open with Domitian sat on a throne, and then the government officials whom he had appointed over the various region would be brought before him and called to give an account of how they were doing. And he would read them, basically, their report. And he would open by saying, you know, to the governor of Syria, or, or sorry, Smyrna, or Ephesus, or whatever. It says, to the governor of Smyrna, I have this for you. You've done particularly well in this area. Well done. Good job. But I have this against you. And you're not doing this very well. So if you don't repent, and if you don't do things differently, there will be consequences to follow. But if you do, there'll be rewards. Do you see what's going on in Revelation? John is taking this image of the games, but with Jesus on the throne. And each letter follows a very similar pattern. Jesus introduces himself. He commends them for something. I have this for you. You've done this particularly well. And then he says, but I have this against you. He challenges them about something. He points to a way forward. He calls on them to listen. And there's a promise to those who hate him. Exact same format as the the emperor's pronouncements to the governors. And today's letter to Smyrna follows roughly that pattern with one exception. Jesus doesn't have anything, a bad word to say about them. There's no rebuke, no challenge, just a word of promise and encouragement to a church which is truly under pressure. Smyrna was a proud, beautiful city, about 35 miles from Ephesus. And it had a real rivalry with Ephesus. Probably not that too much unlike sort of Liverpool v Manchester or Edinburgh against Glasgow. There was a sense that if Ephesus might be officially the big city... But everyone knows that Smyrna's number one. And in the ancient world, Smyrna was renowned as a beautiful city. But it, and this is some of the architecture that remains today. It's in, it's in modern Izmir. And, uh, but it was a beauty that had come from resurrection. Their beauty had come from resurrection. Centuries earlier, it had been utterly destroyed in a war. And then for 300 years, it was just derelict. Then around 300 BC, it was rebuilt by the Greeks from scratch. And unlike other cities, which is all a bit of a mix and match, of, and you just have to build alongside whatever happened to be there already, you know, with Smyrna, it was like they were given just a blank sheet of paper and said, build the city you want. And they did. And it was beautiful. 
But it was a beauty that came because of resurrection. It was a beauty that only came about because of what it had endured. If the bad stuff hadn't happened, Smyrna would not have been the beautiful city it was. So when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, I'm the one who was dead and is alive again, he is speaking into their situation. This was a city and a people who knew what it was like to be dead and come back to life. This was their story. But within that small community, within that beautiful prosperous city, there was a small community of followers of Jesus who felt under pressure. They were struggling to keep going. They needed a word of encouragement. They needed an injection of hope. And what they're offered reflects much of what I said earlier about the ingredients of hope. For that need for community, they were given the promise of Christ's presence. That they weren't alone. They weren't forgotten. For that need of a sense of control, they were given the promise that whatever they faced, God was with it, God had it under control. And for the need for the value of something, they were given the assurance of Christ's reward. The community, the control, and something of value. For that need of community, they were given the promise of Christ's presence. He says, I know what you're going through. I know the pressure you're under. Some of the language in this passage translates a little stronger in our Bibles than it does in the Greek. Often it's assumed that uh, Smyrna was facing direct persecution. And there is some evidence, particularly in the mention of prison towards the end of it, that this was on the way. But the actual Greek word just means the pressure of events. That they faced struggles. At times they felt isolated and abandoned. And they were a community that felt under pressure from all sides. Smyrna prided itself as being the most loyal city to Rome and to Caesar worship. As far back as 195 BC, the first temple to the goddess Roma had been built in Smyrna. Around the time of Jesus' ministry, the the then emperor Tiberius held a competition in the area for which city would be allowed to build the temple and that would worship him and the empire. And Smyrna competed with all the other cities in the area, including their great rivals Ephesus, and they won. This was not a city where even a hint of disloyalty would be popular. So Christians were already under suspicion for refusing to declare Caesar as Lord. But they also faced opposition from the local Jewish community. Sources from outside the Bible tells us there was quite a big Jewish community in Smyrna. And many of them were quite influential. And they had contributed significant sums towards the rebuilding of the city and keeping the city beautiful. And some of the language uh, sounds really, really strong. And I, and I have Jewish friends that suffer enough anti-Semitism without the church adding to it. So I need to kind of just emphasize, this is John as a Jew writing about other Jews. 
And sometimes the harshest words are reserved for the people to whom we're closest. Am I right? You say things to your spouse that you wouldn't say to most other people. There's something of that here. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found that the kind of Jewish community that sort of had met in Qumran and you know, preserved these things, they spoke of other Jewish groups who weren't part of them in much the same way. And Christianity emerged from within Judaism. And this, the, 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 this Jesus whom Christians talked about was a Jewish guy who had been crucified. And in an area loyal to Rome, that meant he was bad news. Crucifixion didn't just happen to anyone. And in much the same way as the average person on the street neither knows nor cares about, say, the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist. It's amazing how many of my friends think I'm a Methodist minister for some reason. I don't know why it's always Methodist, but they neither know nor care about the difference, really. So the average Smyrna person probably couldn't tell the difference between one Jewish group and another. If one lot were trouble, they were all trouble. And so other Jewish groups would try to distance themselves from the Christians. They would, there were lies spread about the Christians. There were, the Christians spoke about the bread and wine that they used in communion as being the body and blood of Jesus. So they said Christians were cannibals. They had fellowship meals called agape meals or love feasts. So they were accused of having orgies. Christian communities ignored the social status of their members. So it was not unknown for a slave to be a leader alongside or even over their master whilst they were in church. And this was again so they were accused of being subversive. And Jewish communities would think of themselves as protecting their own faith. But John says, you're actually doing Satan's work. And it is quite often what we can be like. We think we're protecting something. But actually, it's really quite hostile. And damaging. And we're doing Satan's work for him. So being a Christian at times meant they just didn't fit in. They didn't do what everybody else did. And that made others suspicious. And and sometimes they were misunderstood or basically lied about. And that still happens today. When Tim Farron was leader of the Liberal Democrats, he was grilled by interviewers in a way that others simply were not because he said he was a Christian and was open about his faith. Just this week, one of the candidates for the leader for the Labour leadership has come under attack because some of her views are inspired by her Roman Catholic faith. And it needn't take the form of outright attack. Sometimes people will make assumptions about you just because, because of your faith. It's not just religious people who encounter this. But our society is really good at pigeonholing people. You vote this way, so you must be that. You did this, so therefore you must think that. You're a Christian, so you must hold these views. That was going on to these Christians. 
He also talks about them experiencing poverty. And in part that might be because they were simply, for the most part in those days, at the lower end of the income scale or the class scale. But many were slaves and had absolutely nothing. And that's actually something that Christians were mocked for. But often it was because their faith left them isolated. The people wouldn't trade with them or do business with them. Or sometimes they would be simply attacked and their possessions stolen and destroyed because they were Christians. They faced all sorts of struggles and there was a warning that things were going to get worse. That official persecution would come even if it hadn't yet. He talks of prison. He talks of being faithful unto death. And it did come. And for many in our world, that is still the reality of their faith today. Open Doors uh, estimate that 260 million Christians, or one in eight Christians in the world, face significant persecution for their faith. One report last year revealed that every single day last year, 11 Christians were executed for their faith. For being, who had to actually take that faithful unto death thing seriously. And the report wasn't even exhaustive. It was only referring to 50 countries in the world. The ones that opened doors thought were most dangerous. The thing is, we can read passages like this and think, this has nothing to say to me. I don't face that. And God willing, I won't. But it's not quite what Revelation says. Revelation says, I know the struggles you are facing. But stay faithful. Not until It doesn't actually say unto death. It says, stay faithful as long as you live. And you will gain life. Because Jesus didn't just promise his presence as he struggled. He promised it was in control. He says the struggle will last ten days. Now there is some debate about whether that means 10 days means a long period or a short period. And it can mean both. I think we kind of know from experience it can mean both. If you go on holiday for 10 days, it disappears like that, doesn't it? Or if if, if somebody started offering you marriage advice and you said, oh, how long have you been married? And they said, 10 days... You'd think, not very long then, right? So it can be quite a short period. However, if you have toothache and you can't get a a dentist appointment for 10 days, that will feel like an eternity. During the week, we had all sorts of problems with our gas supply and then our boiler. And in the first half of the week when it was really quite cold, our house had no heat. And it lasted about 48 hours. But it felt like forever. But the point being made is, he said, it might feel long, it might feel short, but it will pass. And perhaps that's what we need to hear this morning. Perhaps we're struggling with something. We feel under the pressure of events. It kind of seems out of control. And it might seem that there is no end in sight. 
But this too shall pass. There was a piece of Roman graffiti once found which said, Rome, your glory will never fade. Rome, your glory will never fade. But it did. We teach it as ancient history or classical history. For that need of community, they were given the promise of Christ's presence that they weren't alone. For that need of the sense of control, they were given the promise that whatever they faced, God had it under control. He said, for that need of the value of something, they were given the promise of Christ's reward. He says, stay faithful, stick with it, you will win the crown of life. And it's a phrase that's lifted from the athletic games that used to take place in honour of Domitian. It's not being crowned king. In a couple of months' time, God willing, Ireland will be crowned Six Nations champions. In the next few months, and it really, 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 really pains me to say this, Liverpool will be crowned champions of the Premier League. It's that sense of being crowned. Nowhere in our New Testaments are we promised freedom from struggle and suffering in this life. Nobody gets a smooth ride. In life, suffering is inevitable. We have to choose what we're prepared to suffer for. When Jesus calls us to take off up our cross, we often focus on the word cross. The writer Richard Rohr says, we're getting it wrong. In life, the cross is a given. The challenge is whether you're going to take it up or not. It's to those who do, who receive what God has promised, who find the beauty that comes from resurrection. The world did its worst to Jesus and he emerged from it triumphant. He was the one who was living and was dead and is alive forevermore. And that's the promise he holds out to us. Smyrna had known the rewards of loyalty to Rome, but they were fleeting. Much as God willing, Liverpool's reign as Premier League titles will be champion will be fleeting. But the rewards of remaining loyal to Jesus are enduring, lasting, and nothing can take it from us. So in this life we will find struggle. We'll find ourselves under pressure. But we can know a community in each other and in the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and amongst us. We'll face struggle, but in all things we are held by God and it is never beyond his control. Whatever we face, this too shall pass. And we have something to hold on for. The promises he offers are lasting and certain. So in all, in this life we will have struggle. But because we have those three things, we can face it with hope.
Grace and peace to you. Amen.